Listener Production. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. This is part two of Peter's conversation with the founder and executive chairman of music and touring company Chug Entertainment, the legendary Michael Chug. The 1970s saw Michael expand his work from managing to touring. The decade started with some heady times with local acts and ended up with a touring portfolio of British acts kicking off the next phase of his career. Where did Sunbury fit into this? Well, um, a guy called John Fowler from Channel 9 and a guy we all know, Jim McKay Jr., started Sunbury. Gidinski and Evans were booking the event um, and they booked quite a few of our acts, Country Radio, Piranha, La-di-da's. They Did they have Billy? Billy was brown, still with Browning at that stage, yeah. Right. Yeah, Billy was came back from England. And what, to do what that. years? Because so, somebody ran a few, ran a few. The, years. It was the first one. Billy and I had a huge argument before he died about what year it was. I think it was seventy one. Right, could have been seventy two. Anyway, um, we had a few bands on that, and that was the first time I ever got stoned. Oh, you finally Sunbury. found drugs. Well, my roadie mate Scrooge Madigan and the drummer, the ex drummer from the Valentines. Yeah. Uh, the drummer had just bought all these little bullets of Durban poison back from South Africa. Oh. They were just little brown paper bullets. And Anyway, my wife Lila and I were staying at a house about 20 miles from Sunbury in this little farm. And So I'm at the show and, you know, Trevor Smith, the radio DJ, and John O'Donnell and other 3X, because 3XY were the big station by then. And a few other people, and we smoked this Durban poison just before Thorpey went on. Of course, this was the suck more piss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Loud, you know. I know. 20 to five minutes. The songs. front fence between the crowd and the front of the stage was basically, you know, chicken wire with barbed wire. And I'm sitting there waiting for Billy to come on, and all of a sudden, this dope kicks in. <laughs> And I was just, I'd never been stoned like that in my life. So I'd only just started smoking, so I wasn't very good at it. Anyway, Thorpey comes on. The music's so loud. There's fires all over the hill. All these people are screaming out, suck more piss. And I just freaked out. It was like I was in a prison camp. We were all about to die. So I grabbed my wife, jumped in the car, and we roared out of somebody. While Billy was on? A second song. Oh. I was so freaked out we had to get out of there. It was, the whole world was coming down on us. <laughs> and hell, when did you finally admit that to Billy? Oh, they all knew. Uh-huh. They all knew a week or so later. Because he was really the... Well, they were all on acid. But that made his career, those Sunbury appearances, didn't it? Well, that was, yeah, well, yeah. I don't mean that quite, I mean, he no, had, he had a career, was, but... Yeah, that yeah. was... Something special. Mm. I, mean, I, I, was, I, I always remember... It was our Woodstock, really. Yeah, but I always remember being... I went back the next day and watched Country Radio and I was standing on the stage behind Greg Quill who was a beautiful, (laughs) soulful, had a couple of big hits and some idiot threw a beer can and hit him in the head and he turned around to me and said, what do I do? I said, tell them all to get fucked. So he did. 
And he, they were one of the stars at the festival. But, uh, yeah, um, so I went home and he'd been bed. So, with so just back, yeah. were you a, did you end up on the stage with a microphone? No, that comes later. So no, none of that. No, no, no that's it was it, much that's later. We'll get to that. We'll get yeah. to that. So, so but, yeah, somebody really got it going. There had been festivals, Wallace and Mulwala in New South Wales, which Lee Dillon, people like that had been involved in, but somebody captured the whole imagination. And, and out of that came, you know, Mushroom Records with that double album. Gadinsky really got Gadinsky's label going. and So the, but prim, the, the premier artists, was, did, that, did that arrive during the Sunbeat era? Yeah, yeah, that was already going. And that was a whole bunch of people. Were you in that? No, no, no. It wasn't initially a whole bunch of people. There was the Australian Entertainment Exchange, which was the agency and was also promoting in national bands. That all fell apart and Gadinsky started Mushroom Records and then he started Premier Artists. Frank Stavala, who was working for Bill Joseph at the time, became the agent. And that was in the early 70s. And then that, that was, to begin with, Premier Arts was the booking agency yeah. and then Mushroom followed was that. Was the label. Yeah. So, yeah. no, well, the Australian Exchange was, you know, Tommy Exchange was still going during the first summary, but yeah. as time progressed, that fell apart. Um, and I was in Sydney with Roger. Um, and then Roger discovered Sherbet and... Everybody told him he was wasting his time. That it's around that time that we'd met, and yeah, I arrived with Hush, and then it had all gone to shit. And let it be. We closed that down. Things but, weren't good. I was broke at the time. Roger was getting ready to go off to America and try and get Sherbet away, and that's when I met you. And we did the the Hush tour yeah. of Tasmania. That's right. Famous which got Hush me tour. back on my. Feet, basically. But uh, if I you have get, you to thank for that. Oh, I, I suspect it was mutual admiration yeah. here. But the, at the same time, yeah, as that happened, I was sitting in the office in Paddington wondering what I was going to do because it just, you know, the lady does had broken up and things were not good. Um, and uh, Ray Arnold, this old roadie who used to drive me around and hang out came up and said, George Young's downstairs. It's George Young, really? And, of course, the Easy Beats were one of my favourite bands. Of all time, yeah. Of all time. And so George and Harry Vander were downstairs and so I went down and sat with them and they said, "We look, we've heard that you're a good bloke and you know what you're doing and, you know, Ray told us that you'd be perfect to manage Stevie Wright. And I went, oh. Really? They said, yeah, we've got this new album called Hard Road and we're about to release a song called Evie. Did they tell you it was seven and a half minutes long? It was longer than that. Was it? It was nine minutes. Was it? There you go. Not at the time, but anyway, I went down to Albert's. I heard all this and it was just amazing what they'd done. Stevie was in, was Jesus Christ or something at the time? He was in Jesus Christ Superstar. So I was, I got... uh, so, you know, Rod Muir was running 2SM and he was, you know, a big fan of Harry and George's. And so they – actually, Trevor Smith was still running 3SY Melbourne. So they put Evie to air, the whole thing, and it just went through the roof. 
So I put a band together called the All-Stars and the first All-Stars was George Young, Harry Vander, Kevin Boric, Ronnie Peel, Rockwell T. James and Johnny Dick. Johnny Dick. And we started touring Stevie and we were selling out Melbourne Festival Hall and the Horden Pavilion and Brisbane Festival Hall and it was just going incredible and it was amazing. Hard Road was number one for fucking eight or nine weeks. The single was number one for half a year. I was there, Michael. I know. Somehow in the middle of this, you were also doing work for Paul Dainty. Right. At the same time? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, Ron Blackmore, who I'd met way back, had seen, you know, they were aware that I'd, I'd actually, you know, probably missed a piece here. Um, there was this little Jewish guy in Sydney called David Gingus. Yes. And he was a friend, Eric Robinson's and mine, and he decided he wanted to be a, wanted to be a promoter. So the first act we did was Fairport Convention. I was the tour manager and um, we did that tour and then he said, I've got this English band I want to bring out called Gary Glitter and the Glitter Men. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, okay. Never really heard of this guy. And I'll never forget we were playing Melbourne Festival. There was about 1,200 people in Festival Hall, Scrooge, and I was sitting on the side of the stage smoking a hash joint. <laughs> and the audience and all of a sudden this motorbike roars up and on comes Gary Glitter all dressed up in... <laughs> you want to be in my hello, gang. Hello, hello. <laughs> on a motorbike and the band and it was like incredible. And I've never seen 1,200 people. Well, I'd only ever seen that sort of reaction when Lilo and I went to see the Four Tops many years before in Melbourne Festival and there was only about 1,800 at that. But the reaction out of these 1,200 people was incredible. And um, it was just amazing. And, of course, Gingis lost a lot of money. But we did a show for 2SM at Moore Park. I know. Hush was on the bill. Were they on the bill? Yeah. In those days there were no... Bill Chambers was the the promotions manager. In those days there were no backstage fences or anything. There was a caravan backstage. (laughs) So glitter goes on, the place goes nuclear, and all the kids come rushing backstage and knock the caravan over, and glitter's in the caravan. <laughs> There's thousands of kids. It was a nightmare. See, and we're trying to get glitter out of the caravan, and Scrooge is on top of the caravan trying to get him out, and glitter's yelling out, "Watch my hair, Scrooge! Don't touch my hair!" <laughs> anyway, we did. We brought him back and did five Melbourne Festival halls. We did this huge marketing campaign called Gary Glitter is July. You remember that? Mm. We had these big posters of a July calendar with him smashing through it. That five Melbourne Festival halls, four or five Horton Pavilions, three Brisbane Festival halls, uh, the cricket ground in Perth outdoors. And was that for you? Were you the promoter of those ones? Eric and I were the promoter of those. Yeah, Gingis had gone broke. Anyway, Ron Blackmore, who worked as ran Dainty's operation in Australia, um, was aware of what I was doing and he came up to me one night and said, we're doing a British Rock and Roll Month next month and I've got Uriah Heap status quo and Black Sabbath. I said, wow, that's fantastic. He said, I need a tour manager to do status quo. And um, I did status quo. I did the status quo tour and 
you know, there were the three acts were touring and they'd occasionally come together like at Memorial Drive in Adelaide, it was Uriah Heap and Quo and things. Anyway, I became very close friends with Quo, but out of that I started to get a little... Uh, that, 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 that sort of work. Started which, to do other tours. Yeah, which helped, didn't it, a lot in those days? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was incredible. He, you know, he was... When him and Blackmore fell out and I sort of started running and and putting all the tours together, I mean, he was paying me $2,000 a week and all expenses and, you know, by 77, when we, the year we did ABBA and Bowie and Fleetwood Max Rock Arena and all that, um, I was in America with Richard Clapton and Kevin Boric right. trying to break them and get record deals and everything and... Um, Dainty would pay me, I was getting 2000 a week plus all expenses. I mean, Paddy Mostyn was the publicist, Eric was the production manager, Eric Robinson, Michael Barnett was the tour accountant, and there was Dainty and me. And in those days there were no percentages. There was no $1 million versus 99% of the profit going to the act. Right. So we used to have competitions so you could spend the most money on room service. I mean, it was ridiculous in those days. So, you know, we got to work with the biggest acts in the world. So can I interrupt and ask a question? So that that history there from Sunbury and Consolidated Rock, my view was always that there was a, there was a moment in all that where it went from really the Billy Thorpe world to the Sherbet world. Yeah. And that, well, that, that, was, that been, was nearly global, it wasn't it? It was Daddy Cool world, Billy Thorpe world, Sherbet world. Right. And then came Skyhawks. Yeah, that's right. And Sky and 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 Sherbet arrived out of Sydney with Roger. Yeah. But really, the rest of it was still Melbourne driven, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, it was pretty much. Um, so you know, I we were, I was managing bands. I was no longer really had the agency going. Um, I was doing Dainty's tours, and then. One day Gadinsky rang me out of the blue and said, would you and Philip Jacobson, who was still involved with me then, Roger had basically got out of it and was just doing Sherbet, who were doing amazing business. I mean, do you remember when they did six Perth entertainment centres? Around Australia in 80 days or something. Unbelievable. So uh, Gadinsky rang and said to you and Philip, would you come on the board of Premier artist, so that's what we did. That was in '75, right? And then, and then, so '75, we became directors of Premier Artists. Uh, My son was born in '77, and we started Harbour Agency in Sydney around '79, '80 with Sam Riggy, Sam Riggy, Robbie Gudinski, Philip, Frank, and myself. I was spending a lot of time overseas trying to get. Boric and Clapton away, um, and I was in London in, in late '78 with Kevin, and he was recording an album. And uh, one night he said, "Come on, I'm going to the Lyceum to see this band." So we went down the Lyceum and I saw the police, and they were unbelievable. And at the time, it was all blowing up out of London. There was the specials, madness. Reckless Eric, yeah. Elvis Costello, the police, Squeeze. It was just all blown up out of London. And when I got back to Australia, I went to Dainty and said, listen, we should start touring 
all this English stuff that's blowing up all over the world. He said, and Dainty always wanted to be Sir Paul Dainty. He was an upper class, slightly snobbish Englishman. He said, I'm not touring that. He, he was much happier touring Sir Paul McCartney. Yeah. Yeah. He said, I'm not touring that East End scum. Because by then I was doing co-promoing with him. Yeah, so you had front, you had Premier with yeah. the boys and then you had... Management company. Yeah. In Sydney. Which was yours. Yeah. Yeah. And I was working with Dainty and all that. So about a week later there was a Premier Artist Directors meeting in Melbourne. I'd been back two weeks. Gadinsky got back the day before from London and we were sitting in the Premier Directors meeting and I said, listen... Mickey, I think it's about time we started a touring company. And his face lights up. I said, you know, I want to start doing all this English stuff. And he opens his briefcase and in the briefcase is the publishing contract for nearly every band I just mentioned. Fantastic. He said, on the way home I went to New York and I saw my friend Ian Copeland who was the brother of the police drummer and Miles Copeland. Copeland, And they were all ex-CIA father brought up in Beirut and Ian was running a, an agency in, he just moved to New York and uh, had all those English bands and um, Gadinsky had got permission off Ian to call our touring company Frontier Touring Company because ah. the agency was called Frontier Booking International, right. FBI. Wow. And um, that's how we started and the first two tour were... Squeeze, which we had to call UK Squeeze because there was a squeeze here. A, a local band, yeah. yeah. And the police. And uh, I was actually, when we did the police, I was actually on the road on the second Fleetwood Mac tour with Dainty and it was a disaster. It wasn't doing that well. And the tour director, John Courage, Fleetwood Mac's tour director, John Courage with the Courage Beer family, was a real character and he was winding Dainty up the whole tour, you know. How does it feel having your tour manager running the hottest tour in Australia <laughs> and all this shit? So by the time we got to Christchurch at the end of the tour, Dainty had, he'd had enough and I was sitting in the restaurant in Christchurch and he was sitting across the room and all of a sudden he picked up a bottle of red wine and threw it at me. <laughs> Missed me by inches and that was the end of that my relationship That was the end of the poor Dainty, Dainty relationship, yeah. right. And Frontier became... The biggest thing in town. Well, it took us a while, but it did, yeah. This is From the Inside with Peter Ricks, and this is part two of his conversation with the founder and executive chairman of music and touring company Chug Entertainment, Michael Chug. In a moment, Peter and Michael look over the acts that Michael managed in the 70s and early 80s, the acts that became big, the one big act that he didn't take up, and his work in taking Aussie acts overseas. So... Before we move on, yeah. t- tell me, tell me about like the 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 history of the acts you've managed, because you can't pass over. Sunny Boys was one of yours. Yeah, all the first ones were the Lady Dars. Yeah, then when they broke up, I started managing Kevin Borich, and then I got a, a call one night from Chris Murphy, who was still a nice guy back then, <laughs> not the arsehole he is today. And he said, look, i got this act in my agency called Richard Clapton and, you know, you should manage him. So I'd started managing Clapton. I'd been doing different bits and pieces. I remember 
around that time I got a call from Ron Tudor's daughter, Megan Tudor. She said, Dad wants to have a meeting with you. I went, oh, okay. So I flew down to Melbourne and Ron was there and, he, you know, Ron had been a huge, huge success story in Australian music and started, you know, so many big acts and Brian Fable Records. Yeah. And then with Cad, they'd started the bootleg Family. label. Yeah. And Cad had had a couple of huge hits, which again, Rod Muir, who had had a lot to do with, and they had the bootleg family. And Ron was sitting in his office and he said to me, look, Brian's huge and we've got this, we've just booked six shows in Victoria, outdoors and stuff, and uh, Brian and the bootleg family, and he said, and I've got a major problem. I said, what? Because I'd known Brian since the group. I met him on the balcony of the Launceston Hotel back in the 60s. I said, what's the problem? He said, Brian's got stage fright, might go on stage. He said, I need you to go on the road and get him on stage. So off we go in this this bus, 40-seater coach, played Hamilton and Warrnambool and all these places. Anyway, we get to Warrnambool and Brian's in the backstage tent, shaking, terrified. And I, I said, I've had enough of this shit. So I went up on stage and started telling jokes, started dancing, took all my clothes off. The crowd were going absolutely apeshit at the time. A couple of thousand kids in morning. It's good to see you found your natural place they, in life. They loved it. And so I walked off, everybody screaming out more and more. I walked into the tent and I said, if I can go up there and make a fucking idiot of myself like I just did, you can go up there and fucking play. And up he went. <laughs> And life and turns life. a turns and, and, a full yeah, circle. He's, he's never got stage fright again. I say, he's <laughs> never had a problem since. No. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, so, yes. So, th- so there was Richard Clapton. Then came Richard Clapton and Kevin Boris Express. Then I, a friend of mine, Margaret in Melbourne, publicist, set me up at her house. On the Wednesday night I had dinner with a young band from Adelaide called Stars. Yeah. And on the Thursday night at her house, I had dinner with another young band from Adelaide called Cold Chisel, and I chose stars. <laughs> well chosen, Michael. Yeah, I did well. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so but, I had but, stars. But stars for a, for a while, Andy Durant, oh, that no, whole they, thing, they were a big band. Big band. They were an amazing band. Yeah, and it's a shame because we lost him quite early in life, Yeah, we did, we? and uh, that was very sad. But then there was, you know, out of that, Along came uh, Lobby Lloyd, who was managing the Sunny Boys, and he had them deeply in debt. They had a couple of hits, and I think Gadinsky said, you've got to manage the Sunny Boys. So then I was managing the Sunny Boys. Then this English guy that I'd met during my time with Stevie Wright, which we didn't really get into the, what really was going on there, but that's another story. Anyway, this English guy, Chris Gilby, rang me up and he said, I've just recorded this band on ATV, Northern Songs, uh, publishing everything. He said, and they've, they've got this song that's going to be a number one all around the world and they need a manager. And he said, they're not easy young guys to get along with. They're very self-centred and they think they know everything. They were called The Church. So I started managing The Church. Out came Unguarded Moment and... Um, there's a few of those, weren't they? They were good. He was a great writer, that bloke. I was managing them, Capitol Records, and signed them. And we went off to America. 
Because Robert Hilburn, the LA, famous LA rock critic, had reviewed Single and said it was one of the best singles in 10, 15 years and all that. So we went off. Rupert Perry was there to Capitol. And uh, we went off to Capitol Records and they were hard work, the band, and they had their own very solid ideas about things. We walk into Capitol Records, we walk into the marketing promo department and the first thing the three girls in the marketing promo department start talking about is the Little River Band and how big they were in America and how great they were and, of course, the the antithesis. We left ten minutes later. People said, I'm fucking had enough of this and we walked out. Yeah. Because they were the, that those girls could not have put their foot in their mouth any more than they did. Yeah, they thought they were nice talking about another lovely Australian band. Yeah, yeah, which they were, but the church hated them. So you know, I had the at one stage I had the Sunny Boys and the Church living in London. In part three of Peter Rix's conversation with Michael Chug, they look at his work in more recent times the role he played in breaking Robbie Williams in Australia, his work in taking Brisbane's Shepherd to global success, and what really happened at that Guns N' Roses concert. That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. Listener.